This is the Plucked Chicken Podcast. Well, it's Pastor Bruss and Pastor Kearns again together, uh, listening to some sermons and giving our critique of them. And Pastor Bruss, we have uh, we have critiqued this particular pastor before, and he started a brand new series, Twisted Scripture. I've listened to it several times. You have sounds, not. Sounds intriguing to yes, me, Yes, it, it, yeah, it yeah. does. And what I like about this guy, you know, he doesn't come on and have everybody clap for the online people and all of the multiple camp high in which the church has. He doesn't do any of that cheerleading stuff. He doesn't take 15 minutes to review the sermon from the week before. He really gets right at it. He's not there to make people laugh. I mean, it, it really so, is so which, refreshing. Which, which church is this? Is this the one in Texas, uh, Church Without Religion? <laughs> Very good recall, Pastor Russ. That's exactly what it is. Well, you know, the one thing that was respectable about him before that I always appreciated was at least he was trying to make an argument and not just uh, a lot of these guys just sort of shout their claim uh, as if repeating and shouting is going to make it stick more. And uh, this guy actually typically does make an argument. So I'm looking forward to this. Well, great. I'm glad you said that. So well, let's turn it over. His name is Andrew Farley, and here he goes. We're going to begin a new series, and it's on Twisted Scripture, untangling 45 lies that Christians have been told. I'm not sure where the series is going yet. I'm going to go week to week. Maybe I'll hit every one. Maybe I'll skip some. But I'm just going to see what I see. And this morning we're starting in the very first chapter with this lie. Wow, that's a, that's a lot of twisted scripture. Well, it, it is a lot of twisted scripture. But to me, the, the interesting thing is that you twist one and you're going to twist them all. And, and so, you know, I guess what he's doing is going for the, the big hitters here where people really get it wrong. Right. But I thought that point that he said there, I'm going to see what I see. We're operating really out of his lens. Right. And I would love to know where he got the 45, uh, the list of 45. Was this, uh, is this some list out there that, or, or is it one that he came up with? Yeah, to get his credit, you know, he's got this call-in radio show where people call in and ask questions, and he does it daily, and so maybe after, you know, a while of doing this, you kind of run up against... Same old, same old. Yeah, yeah and, and he's able to, yeah. to pull a list together. Well, this will be interesting. I'm, I'm fascinated to find out what he's got to say. Well, just take a wild guess. What do you think he's going to start this series off with? I would guess it would be something on uh, one of the two sacraments, but I, I may be wrong. <laughs> no, no, you're right. Isn't that amazing? He's going right for the jugular, isn't he? Huh? Absolutely. Wow. Now, let me say at the outset that this is going to be a tremendous reaffirmation for some of us, a tremendous reaffirmation of what we already believe. For some of us, if you've been at this church for a decade, it'll be a reaffirmation of some previous thoughts I've shared about baptism. But what I like about this series is that we're just going to hit power-packed passages in the Bible week after week after week, and we're going to affirm what we believe here at Church Without Religion, what we're about, and what a Jesus-centered theology really looks like, and why that matters for daily living. And so let me just say with that, well, let's open with a word of prayer 
and we will jump right in. Notice how he puts that. It's the affirmation of what we believe. Now, there's no question that Christian proclamation should affirm the, the true orthodox faith of the faithful. But to me, he's, he's shrinking this in a significant way and saying what we believe here at Church Without Religion. Excluding, uh, you're saying, the universal church, excluding uh, the, the church that has existed long before uh, he set up shop there in Texas. Absolutely. And the broader church altogether. Just read a quote from Hermann Zasse the other e- evening, last night, in, in, a, in our class. And Zasse was talking about the importance of the Lutheran confessions. And what he was saying is that the Lutherans took so seriously the oneness of the body of Christ that they couldn't conceive of doing their theology in a corner. This had to be the universal theology of the universal church. Why? Because there is only one church. And this, what we're hearing here is like, hey, man, this is our own idiosyncratic gig. Um, this is how, how we make our mark on the world. And there's no cognizance of the... Um, Catholicity. The Catholicity of the church. Thank you. But when you name your church church without religion, I mean, that automatically says ignorance because you're making it sound like Christianity is not a religion. Right. And you think about that, uh, the end of the Athanasian Creed. This is the Catholic religion, which if you believe, blah, 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 you will be saved, and which if you deny, you will be condemned. Christianity itself called itself a religion. Father, we thank you. For this time, we just ask that you would minister to us in a powerful way today and throughout this series that we would see Jesus Christ high and lifted up, seated at your right hand, us seated there too. So much to reveal to us, Father, so much to teach and counsel us. We ask you to do so in Jesus' name and we thank you. Amen. This is fascinating to me where he starts his theology. He starts his theology off in heaven. So, so already here, we, we can predict where this is going. This is going to be a very disembodied form of Christianity. Luther says, if you would know God, look at him in the arms of, of the Blessed Virgin. Look at him nailed to the cross of Calvary. Or standing on the seashore teaching. Right. Right. As a very physical, human, down to earth, literally. Literally down to earth. In every one of the masses that were composed by classical composers, when it comes to the incarnation in the Nicene Creed, at incarnatus est, the music, I mean, it swells. And it, it, this is the moment. This is the way that we know God is through the incarnation. And what he's asking us to do is ascend to heaven where Jesus, uh, and of course, I mean, we're not denying his, his ascension into heaven and his session at the right hand of the Father. But this is so foreign to us. We can see Jesus with his mother. We can see Jesus on the, uh, on the shore teaching the people. We can see Jesus with the children and with the disciples, and even as gruesome as it is, on the cross. Him seated at the right hand of God the Father, this is swimming in waters that are way too deep for us. 
Correct. It's peering where we where where we can't peer, or where we will peer, but where we can't peer uh, right now. Or as Luther would say, looking upon the naked God. In a sense, that's that's where he's leading us. Now, fortunately, he he kept he, he kept God embodied in the person of Christ. So I I appreciate that much. However, th- this is just a fundamental difference in in approach to theology. Do we know God by ascending to him or do we know God by God descending to us? The answer has to, it's impossible to know God by ascending to him. We're beginning this whole sermon by ascending to God. And what that's going to leave us, I believe, with is an entirely disembodied sacramental system, or not a, a no, no sacramental system. You get rid of the incarnation, gloss over the crucifixion, and you have a God whose fingernails just can't get dirty. And someone who's listening to the podcast, they might be thinking, man, you know, here here these guys are going on and on about the way he prays, but it brings up a very important point, lex orandi, lex credendi. We actually talked about this in adult catechesis last night, in that the way that you believe it actually can't be contained. It's going to spill out in the way that you pray, in the way that you worship. And so here we've listened to the way in which he's prayed, and it really does tell us a lot about the way in which he believes. Yes, it's a telltale. It's a it's a telltale sign. It's it's gonna spill out. And for Lutherans listening to this podcast, they should be aware that lex orandi, lex credendi. You cannot pray heterodox prayers and still maintain an orthodox belief. <laughs> right. Right. Of course. Right. So, so what we're doing is we're saying we can see where this guy, where this guy's theology is by his prayer. But the the fact of the matter is that there's this bad idea out there among some Lutherans that you know, well, any prayer is just fine, you know, as long as there's nothing wrong with it. Well, um, you know, this prayer, if your radar is not up, there's you know, scare quotes, nothing wrong with it. Uh, except for you know, once you start to see what the implications of this high, mighty, sovereign, ascended Lord are uh, for how your theology is going to work and what you need to do in the theological task, why then all of a sudden it becomes really important. Lie number one, you must be baptized in water to be saved. Now, if you haven't heard this, all you have to do is travel a few miles and you're going to find one church or another that is going to say, man, it is great that you have faith in Jesus Christ, but... Man, it is awesome that you have accepted the gospel message, but sound familiar? 2,000 years ago, there were people coming in behind the Apostle Paul and saying, Paul's message is great, but you need to be circumcised. Paul's message about a spiritual truth is awesome, but you need to do something physical to make sure that you're truly right with God. And of course, Paul got hot mad about that, totally frustrated with the Galatians for being suckers of that sales pitch. And so he says to them in their face, you foolish Galatians, who has tricked you? What did I teach you people? And who has come in twisting the scriptures on you, twisting the message so that it's Jesus plus circumcision? That is exactly what Paul said to the Galatians. He, he is exactly right. There are several mistakes that he's making, significant ones. Number one, 
uh, again, we've talked about this before, the sedes doctrinae. He has not gone to the sedes doctrinae for baptism at all. He's importing another passage to speak to this question of baptism. And even though that passage deals with circumcision, he's then saying that it applies to anything else. Anything else. And the mistake that he's making in, in understanding what Paul's talking about here with these Judaizers is that it wasn't just a matter of circumcision. It was actually a matter of keeping the entire, whatever, 634 commandments that the Pharisees had and saying that that was required for salvation. So circumcision is the entryway into this other covenant, if you will, this covenant of the Judaizers where it's the 634 laws. So as he's talking about circumcision, it becomes a symbol for living under the law and not under the gospel. Or maybe just a touch point for the entire lifestyle that that the Judaizers are promoting. Precisely. Precisely. So, so how can one say how can one say that baptism is the exact same thing and that if Paul were alive today, which is what he's going to go on here to say in a few moments, he would be so mad that baptism is uh, being equated to something else. Right. Oh, you foolish Lutherans. Exactly. And in the same exact letter of the Galatians, I'm reading you from chapter 3, chapter 3, beginning at verse 23. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So Paul is saying, look, if you want to go back to circumcision, you're going back to the prison. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came. Now Christ is here in order that we might be justified by faith. So faith in Christ. Now he goes on. This is exactly what he was saying earlier. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free. There is no male or female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. How are they in Christ? They are in Christ through baptism into Christ. That's exactly what Paul says. This guy is a deceiver. Isn't that ironic? He's talking about how the scriptures are twisted, and what's he doing? He's twisting the scriptures. Now, you fast forward 2,000 years later, and would not the Apostle Paul come to some of us today and say, you foolish Americans, and you foolish Canadians... And you foolish, you fill in the blank, because the worldwide church, the bride of Christ all around the planet, has entertained on some level, corporately or individually, this idea that if I'm not down in that water, then I'm not okay with God. Now, he did touch on it right there when he said about the universal church. I don't know if that's exactly what the words are. The bride of Christ. Yeah, the bride of Christ and how the universal church at some time or another has picked up on this idea. But really what he's saying is they're all wrong. And you had mentioned off air that uh, this demonstrates an awful lot of hubris. It does. Now, what he's done here, I think, is erect a straw man. The way he's put their position is that if I don't get baptized, I'm not right with God. That is a law way of stating what goes on in baptism. The gospel way of stating it is that 
through baptism, God wants to save you. Basically, the end result is the same. You need to be baptized, okay? But the question is, is it compelled by the gospel or compelled by the law? What he's saying is it's compelled by the law. What we contend is that baptism is a means by which God applies the gospel to the life of the Christian. And this is clear in the scriptures. He who believes and is baptized will be saved. We just read it from Galatians chapter 3. Titus chapter 3 talks about the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might be made heirs of everlasting life. St. Paul talks about our burial in Romans 6, our burial with Christ through baptism into death and therefore also our resurrection. And so the gospelness of baptism is all over the scriptures. But in a way, we would agree with him that baptism is not a law-based thing in which we're supposed to do. Absolutely. But the problem is he's erected a straw man and imputed to us the idea that this flows out of the law. No, it doesn't. It flows out of the gospel. And Paul would be irate about that today, just like he was furious with those adding circumcision. Actually, Paul would be irate with something. I think he'd be irate with the fact that there are some Christians who regard baptism as a work to be done in order to get right with God. Precisely who those Christians are, I don't know. Is it? Uh, we, we've heard it. It's, it's the Baptists, right? That this is a, an act of obedience toward the Lord. That would be the thing that Paul would quibble with. He would not quibble with baptism as the application of the gospel to the life of the sinner. Uh, how could he? How right. could he argue with that? Because he, said, he himself said it. <laughs> and not only that, but he was also the recipient of it. Correct. He himself was baptized. But he wasn't baptized to demonstrate to the entire world that he was saved. No. He wasn't baptized to declare publicly what had happened privately. No, it was the application of God's grace. So we're going to journey through some scriptures this morning and see the truth about this idea of baptism in water. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 says this, Has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Remember, these are those Christians who are fighting and bickering and even bragging. Some of them are bragging, well, I got baptized by you-know-who. I got baptized by Paul himself. And then others were, well, you know, I mean, I got Cephas, and he's pretty cool. <laughs> but if you were baptized by Paul, man... They were thinking, that is a big deal. Not only did I believe in the gospel, but I got the seal of approval from the Apostle Paul. He held my head, man. He grabbed a hold of the back of my hair and dunked me in, and that was Paul himself. So, whoa, I'm not just a Christian. I am a super Christian. He's really embellishing what the Scripture says, isn't he? He's really adding a lot to it. He is, and I, I say, what's the point? Uh, how does this add to his... Uh, it'll be interesting to see how he makes this plug into his argument. It's, it's irrelevant, although what he's doing is he's, use, he's using it to diminish baptism. Paul style. Now, Paul hated that. 
I mean, we find out in the book of Corinthians that they're having divisions and factions. And it's almost like as early as 2,000 years ago, they're almost going to create denominations right on the spot if Paul doesn't stop them. I mean, there's going to be the Cephas group and the Paul group. And here's Paul trying to bring them back to the centrality of Christ and say, Look, did I hang on a cross for you? Uh, No, that's not the message I brought. Were you baptized in my name? No, even if I held you under, those are not the words that came out of my mouth. You were baptized in the name of Jesus, not Paul. But they were baptized. What? <laughs> that's, that's what the text says. They were baptized. And, and he's admitting it. They were baptized. So out of one side of the mouth, he's diminishing baptism. But for those Christians who were being baptized, it wasn't an insignificant thing. Now, was it? Not at all. The problem was that they were assigning the wrong significance to it, that Paul was the guy who did it, or Cephas. Okay, big deal. I mean, they got to get over that and stop talking that way because they were baptized into Christ. The point is, though, that they were baptized. There's a rule in the church and probably a rule in life. Abusus non tollit usum. Abuse does not take away the use. What he's doing here, though, is he's pretending as if the axiom ought to be abusus tollet usum, that the abuse does take away the use. Uh, so here we've got a clear abuse of baptism, and what he's doing with it is he's just panning baptism altogether. He goes on to say, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Chrysippus and Gaius. So apparently two people got the elite baptism. And then you've got hundreds of Corinthians who didn't, maybe thousands who were saying, uh, I, I'll, I want what he's got. I mean, Chrysippus, he got Paul himself. And so Paul is actually grateful. I mean, he's actually grateful that he only baptized two people. And then you see him, well, he's becoming an old man here. He backpedals in the next few verses. He's, well, wait a minute, there was that household. Yeah, yeah, I did baptize them. So he's having a little bit of Alzheimer's, you know, recovering the thoughts of who he... Okay, all right, now, but I still, I mean, come on, if you total it out, I only baptized six or seven people max. So hundreds of people I didn't baptize. And by the way, man, I am so grateful about that. Because if I had baptized dozens or hundreds of people, then guess what? We would have a church split in Corinth, and there would be the Paul group and the non-Paul group. And I don't want anything like that. So he is thanking God that he baptized none of them or just a few. Now, uh, you say, why exactly? Well, not only to avoid divisions and factions, but look at this. Christ did not send me to baptize. Sure, I baptized half a dozen, but that wasn't the mission. Christ did not send me to baptize, but to do what? Preach the gospel. All right, so, wow, there's a lot here. This drives me up a wall, and we've talked about this before. When Paul says that I didn't come to baptize, my goodness, why would he need to? There are other pastors right there in the congregation who can do that. Their own pastors. Their own pastors to baptize them, which he said that wasn't my mission. Excuse me, Jesus said it was your mission. Baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's how you make a disciple. Oh, man. 
Right. And so, so the, the complete mission of Jesus is being taken care of here. There is baptism going on. There is the proclamation and teaching of everything that Jesus has taught. It's just that Paul, as a fantastic preacher, is the one who's doing the, the bulk of the preaching and the other guys are doing the baptizing. Well, he's an apostle. I mean, if we had an apostle today, which we don't, but if we had an apostle today to come to our church, I think we would gladly give him the microphone. Right, right, exactly. And take our seat in our sedalia. Correct, correct. Just as we do when we have missionaries come through. But then when there is someone who wants to receive the gifts via the means of baptism, I'm sure that apostle would look to you or me and go, get over there. Right. And this whole business about Paul having an Alzheimer's moment. Well, again, he's embellishing, right? I know, just but a... I don't appreciate that. Really, the apostle that the Lord is using to deliver his inerrant word has has an Alzheimer's moment right here on the page. Um, the reason that Stephanus is mentioned as a footnote here in Paul's writing is because Stephanus wasn't in Corinth any longer. He's talking to the people who are still in Corinth. You can see this in 1 Corinthians 16, 17. He says, Now I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to such as these, and to every fellow worker and laborer. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus, because they have made up for your absence. So Stephanus and these other guys have gone to see Paul. And he's talking about Gaius and Crispus because they're the ones still in Corinth who have been baptized by Paul. This is just, I'm sorry. It, it's, it's very disheartening to hear this. Well, it gets worse. Great. Not in cleverness of speech so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. So... Paul's mission was never to dunk people in water. And if that were the case, then he is directly disobeying what the Lord Jesus said. Okay, so he's directly disobeying what Jesus says in Matthew 28. And he disobeyed the Lord Jesus when he baptized the household of Stephanus and when he baptized Crispus and Gaius. I know you enjoy this guy because he, he has good argumentation, but this is, this is weak. This is terrible argumentation. The point is he makes an argument. Correct. But I would say anybody who makes an argument against baptism, they're standing on shaky ground, as it were. I don't think there's any argument that can be made that's legitimate. And I'm not just talking about the conclusion. I'm talking about when you look at the evidence, what argument can you make against the salvific, efficacious nature of baptism? What argument can you make against Jesus' own words unless you are born of water and spirit? spirit? You shall not see the kingdom of heaven. Well, I'm glad you brought that up because Andrew is going to get there. Wonderful. Why is that? Because being dunked in water is not what saves. It's the preaching of the gospel that saves. And so Paul was brought to deliver the message that saves people for by grace through faith. That's how we're saved. It's not of ourselves. It's not about our washings. It's not about our visiting a lake. It's not about a swimming pool. It's not about a baptismal tub. It's about being in Christ. So so there's a basic problem here. What he's done is he has so reduced the gospel that it's only 
proclamation. He hasn't asked the question, does the gospel comprehend baptism? Does it comprehend the forgiveness of sins? And it clearly does. That's what Jesus says. Go make disciples of all nations by baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them all things whatsoever I have commanded you. I'd, I'd hate to do this, but I'd love to create an umbrella uh, under which you would place all the stuff pertinent to the gospel as you sort of went through the scriptures. And you would find out very, very quickly that uh, there's no single point in there there's lots and lots of stuff all related to each other, including the delivery mechanism for the gospel, baptism being one of them. So we've talked about this before on the podcast and off the podcast. You know, is this going back to that magisterial versus ministerial use of reason and that for the evangelical or at least for Andrew Farley, it's the whole notion that the reason is set above the revelation and that the revelation says this is how the gifts are delivered, or this, as you say, this is under the umbrella of the gospel, i.e. baptism, and it's our reason. I mean, because these people are going to clap here in a minute after what he's talking about. And so they're all using that magisterial reason here? I think that's exactly right, because there are all these interesting or tragic exclusions. We haven't gotten to Mark 16, 16. We haven't touched that. We haven't touched John 3. Titus 3 either. Titus 3. We haven't touched Romans 6. We haven't touched Galatians chapter 3. All of these places where... The sadist doctrini. Right. the, The actual places that talk about baptism clearly show that salvation is delivered through this means. You might not like that. Well, it's kind of like my homily from last night. Uh, who wants a wet willy? Nobody does. But the deaf man didn't have a choice. He got a wet willy from the Lord, and it opened up his ears. Who thinks that something— And if you were to ask him today if he enjoyed it— He would say, I, you bet I did. Give me another wet willy. Uh but it's the same thing with with water, bread, and wine. These are regarded, I think, by the evangelical world as the equivalent of a disgusting wet willy that the Lord would never stoop to to bring salvation. But he does. But he does. And if he delivered those gifts via those means, man, if the Lord told me that I was going to receive the forgiveness of sins, life, and salvation via eating rat turd, you eat it. Luther makes the same statement. Uh, he says that if the Lord told me that, that I would have salvation through eating manure, he, I would. And that's what happens when we hear it, and then we believe it, and we receive it. We get put, placed, immersed, baptized into Jesus himself. And as we'll see, that is what really saves. Now, oh, you've got to be kidding me. This is the old saw. Uh, the two baptism theory, isn't it? The one where it's waterless and now we got this other one that's going to have water and the water one isn't any good and it belies, that theory belies the whole nature of baptism which is actually with water. What a canard. Yeah, it's it's the dry baptism. That's the one that saves. Yeah. Right, so baptism does save. He recognizes this. I'm going to read it to you exactly from what he was reading before. 1 Corinthians uh, 1.18, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. Well, yes. This is folly to him. This is folly to him. That the Lord should work this way is just pure nonsense. Water baptism is an awesome symbol, and we baptize people in water here. 
All right, so now he's going to give a little tip of the hat here to baptism. See, because he, he can't discount it completely. So he's water, got bap- to, water baptism. Water baptism. So he's got to, he's got to like, you know, at least say it means something. It's an awesome symbol. We never find this in the scriptures. The scriptures never say get baptized as a symbol of anything. But he's now making it into an awesome symbol. So yet again, if there's anybody twisting the scriptures here, it's our friend. It's this guy. Uh, at, when I was uh, 15 or 16 years old, I was baptized in a swimming pool. And I remember that day. I remember the opportunity to open my mouth for 10, 15 seconds and just let people know I had received Jesus Christ as my Savior and Lord. And then I was lowered into that swimming pool water and raised up. And you know what? I felt exactly the same coming up out of that water. And you know why? Because I already knew this isn't causing something. This is celebrating something. Feelings, nothing more than feelings. So he's taken the objective work of God and made the measure of its effectiveness his internal barometer of feelings. I can remember when I was ordained. Uh, it was a huge day. Uh, you probably remember your ordination. For most Lutheran Lutherans, uh, a thing like ordination or confirmation is going to be the big religious event. You don't feel any different. I, I didn't. I, I was still the same sinner I had been before. But that wasn't the point. The point of my ordination was not to stir something inside of me. It was to mark me as one called by God to proclaim his word in an authoritative way. Same thing happens in baptism. Whether there's feelings accompanying it or not, and there, let's grant, there might be. I mean, I, I can imagine an adult getting baptized just like we had at the Vigil of Easter this past year. That would be a pretty awesome feeling, but maybe not. They're still going to be a sinner after they emerge from those waters. But here's the point. God ob- has objectively applied the death and resurrection of Jesus to each of these people in their baptism, and that is the thing that baptism is for. Well, and uh, that's a much greater point than the point that I was thinking about. But, you know, here's this guy at 15 years of age who comes up out of the water and says, I knew that my dry baptism was more important than my wet baptism. And here he is at, I don't know, what, 40-some-odd years of age, and he's got the exact same process going through his head that he had at 15. I mean, think about that. I mean, think about where you were in your your religious understanding at 15. That's a great point. Compared to where it is now. Right. Yep, and he's stuck with his 15-year-old. Yeah, he's been preaching a 15, you know, a 15-year-old sermon again, never ever inquiring about the church at large or the church that existed 2000 years before he was dunked into those waters. Right. Right. I mean, it's such a sophomoric thought process anyway, but then to admit that you've had it all of your life and it never concords with scripture as we're pointing out. And his criterion for, for dismissing it is that he, that he felt no different. It's, it's completely egocentric. It's not based upon what the scriptures have taught. It emanates from himself. So this is truly, to go back to your earlier point, 
This is truly the magisterial use of reason. And so many people got to say amen with me, and I got to receive hugs and, and, and handshakes and congratulations, and it was just a way of me saying corporately or collectively, I identify with Jesus Christ. I am in Him, and He is in me. That's exactly right. I mean, he did whether he believes it or not. He became in Christ. He at became that point. in Christ. He was clothed with the righteousness of Jesus Christ at that moment. Absolutely. He didn't feel it. No. And that's fine. No, but, but because it's God's work and not his. Right. Right. And he just denied the the feelings and then he's been talking about what an exultant moment it was. Well, he was ta- I think he was talking about at that moment he had no feelings, oh, but, then but then afterwards he gets out of yeah. the pool and starts drying off and people are slapping him on the back or whatever they're doing. And then he felt really good. Yeah. Yeah, gotcha. So we celebrate baptism around here just as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, which you uh, enjoyed this morning. Together with me, we celebrated the body and blood of Jesus Christ. But what is the significance of baptism? Well, a friend of mine about a decade ago, he had a little lesson about baptism, a little lesson for his daughter about baptism right there at the kitchen sink. And some of you know this story, but what he did was he took a bottle, a water bottle just like this, and he took the cap off, unscrewing it, an empty bottle, and he showed it to his daughter, and he said, now what I'm going to do is I'm going to put this in the kitchen sink, and the kitchen sink is full of water. Now what happens when I put this bottle in this water? Well, two things happen. The water is now in the bottle, but also I want you to notice the bottle is also in the water. So we have water in the bottle and bottle in the water. And then he reached down into this kitchen sink and he put the cap on and he sealed it up. And then he said, that's what it means to be sealed in Jesus Christ. Now, isn't that cool to think that we are in Christ and Christ is in us? And right there at the kitchen sink, we see a symbol, a picture, a shadow of what it means to be filled with him, immersed in him, him in us, and us in him. This is the vine and the branches picture all over again. Maybe you don't know the origin of this word baptism, but it is believed, at least, that back in the day, they would uh, crush up seashells by the seashore. You see, I said that pretty well, actually. <laughs> they would crush up seashells by the seashore, and when they did, uh, what would happen next is that they would make a fine powder and that powder uh, would be purple in color, okay? So it, it might have ended up in a little container like this, and that purple powder would then be uh, put on a garment. It would be on a white garment, perhaps, and then what you would see is that they would take a, a linen, a piece of cloth, and they would dip that down into the purple purple water and they would dye it and so what was white or average or normal or everyday a piece of cloth for everyday use would then be made purple and then would be made for royal use and so it's believed that this is the origin of the original use of this idea of baptism they would baptize the cloth into a purple dye 
Now, I've done this for you right here in this bottle. And you'll notice that what appeared to be a clear bottle before is now a purple bottle. It almost, it's almost like it has a new identity. It's almost like it has a new nature. It's almost like it has a new purpose. And so now we put the bottle back in there to demonstrate that we are in Christ, and Christ is in us, and we together have been dyed purple, made a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of God's own possession. Amen? Yeah. And so we see this morning that water baptism is a celebration of becoming spiritually purple. Wow, what a waste of time, you know? And it's like a revelation via, what, history and props? Right. And it's very confused because the fact of the matter is, before he put the white linen into the purple dye, guess what? It was white linen. It wasn't made purple by any decision that it made. It didn't say, I'm on team purple, and then get baptized. Somebody had to stick it into the, the thing. Then it became a purple cloth. It was because of the baptism that it was made into something new. And so, and, and so but, his whole analogy limps. This is lame. Right. So the white linen then received the purple dye because it didn't do anything to become purple. Somebody right. did it to the linen. Right. It was completely passive in the whole thing. Actually, this analogy, I don't mind it because it actually supports the biblical view of baptism, that something actually happens in baptism. Yeah. I mean, that's really our point. Right. Something happens. Salvation is delivered. That, that's what we need to say. You're justified. You're forgiven your sins. You are rescued from death and the devil, and you're given everlasting life as the words and promises of God declare. Which are these words and promises of God? Mark sixteen sixteen. He who believes and is baptized shall be saved. Wait, what you just said there, I mean, you didn't hold up a water bottle with purple water in it and you didn't have to explain the the process to get purple dye and no you mean it was just uh, adequate to to cite the scriptures yeah right i, I think that's all we needed <laughs> it is becoming spiritual royalty a royal priesthood a holy nation it is not the h2o that causes it as we'll see today it is the spirit of god that has caused it but when you become a king or a queen when you become a prince or a princess, when you are moved away from peasantry into a life of royalty, man, that is worth celebrating. And anybody who really understands water baptism, that's what it's about. It's a celebration. It is not going to make you better with God, but it is going to make you say, wow, and thank you. And that's what it's all about. I don't know what's worse, is analogies or, you know, these definitive statements. What an empty, he's left a shell of baptism. There's nothing there. Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. We see in Acts 10, this affirmed, again, this idea that baptism doesn't cause salvation. Acts 10, 47, surely no one can refuse the water for these to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we did, Kenny. Now, you'll notice that Peter is blown over 
I mean, Peter is flabbergasted. Peter is shocked that these dirty Gentiles, that's who he's talking about, he comes up upon this crowd of, of Gentiles and they've received the Holy Spirit just as Peter has. And so he says, what prevents, how could we refuse, how could we stop this group from celebrating that they've already got the Holy Spirit? Now, did they already have the Holy Spirit? Yeah. What was the purpose of water baptism? To celebrate it. It didn't cause the Spirit to come, but as a result of the Spirit of, of Jesus Christ living in them, Peter's saying, hey, let's have, let's have a bash, man. Let's have a party about what has already happened. That is so stupid. And who is he to tell the Lord what's necessary for salvation or not? That's exactly what he's doing. He's saying the only thing that's necessary is this receiving the Spirit. Well, the Lord has given this other gift of baptism. He doesn't know what to do with it now. And so what he does is he writes into Scripture that they're having a, having a party. They're celebrating. Yeah, it sounds like Jeff Spicoli. Hey, man. <laughs> Let's get some pizza and smoke Let's... some weed. <laughs> Have a party. That's exactly what it sounds like. You see here in Acts chapter 2, a popular passage where people say, well, no, 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 no. I mean, baptism causes forgiveness. And it's a misreading of a particular word, which I've put in red for us this morning. But look at Acts 2.38. Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, if this is all we had, if we only had this verse, if we didn't have Acts chapter 10, where we saw they got saved without water, if we didn't have the whole of the New Testament and all the epistles that talk about salvation by grace through faith, and there's no mention of H2O in Romans 6, and there's no mention of H2O in salvation passages, whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved, no mention of water. Like if we didn't have that, and if all we had was this, this verse set up on a pedestal, misunderstood, then I could see how we arrive at H2O, saves a person. But, curiously, this word for, ice, in the original language, E-I-S, ice can mean in light of. And so it seems to me that in light of the New Testament, in light of the message of salvation, what's really being said here in Acts 2 is be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ in light of the forgiveness of your sins. What he's doing here is he has gotten out his Greek lexicon. He has gone through the list of possible meanings for ace. I, I don't know where this one's listed probably 10 or 11. A few passages, uh, maybe in the scriptures, probably in secular texts, where this seems to be the only meaning that the word can bear, and he's retrojected it upon this passage here. The natural, the most natural meaning for ace here is for the purpose of, and you see that all over the New Testament, ace used in this particular way. But his whole interpretation fails the way that Paul says at the very end of the verse, and you will, re will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. He doesn't deal with that. Let's, let's read it the way that he wants to read it. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, in light of the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. What he's been telling us all along 
is that reception of the Holy Spirit is prior to baptism. Here it's posterior. And the forgiveness of sins is posterior. And then he also said that Romans 6, there's no water there. Right. Uh, the, the word water doesn't come up, but baptizdo uh, is baptizing in water or uh, application of water. You're exasperated. I, I'm totally exasperated because what he's doing is he's pitting the scriptures against the scriptures. He's gone and cherry picked a handful of scriptures where, where, where he's reading them in a very unique way. He's come at them with a presupposition that they exclude water. Well, there's no indication in the text that there's an exclusion of water. And then he's bringing them to bear against another passage of scripture in Acts chapter 2 that clearly says that baptism is for the forgiveness of sins and for the receiving of the Holy Spirit. And this heterodoxy in which he is publicly displaying has been his at least since he was 15. Since he was 15, at least. Water doesn't wash away your sins. It's the blood of Christ that washes away our sins. And so it's not being put in a swimming pool to get rid of sins, as we'll see in the next few verses, clearly that happens from the blood of Jesus and nothing else. Another swing and a miss. He has completely misunderstood sacramental theology. If you were to simply look at a basic Lutheran text on what Lutherans teach on uh, the sacrament of baptism, he would see clearly where Luther says, uh, certainly water does not do such great things, but it is the water connected with the word that does these things and the faith in that word, in the baptism that does these things. And there's no denial about the efficacy of the word. It's just this, that God wants to connect his word to baptism just as he connects it to white pages and black print. This is the divine delivery mechanism. Circling back to what we were talking about earlier, lex credendi, lex orendi, you know, I'm reminded as he says that last little bit there uh, of, the, of the hymn that says, what can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Well, it's, it's true. A Lutheran would wholeheartedly espouse that line. But where does one get the blood of Jesus? The, if the hymn doesn't answer that, that's where the Lutheran, and if, it, and if it steers away from that on purpose, then that's where the Lutheran gets, gets his undies in a bunch. Right, because the blood of Jesus actually gets poured into my mouth. Right. I mean, it's, it's a real thing. I can smell it. I can taste it. You know, wine gladdens a man's heart. You know, it's this whole idea of you walking away going, Ooh, wow, there was there was something to that. And there was something to that other than the taste. It was, what can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. The problem is, is that this guy has been catechized by the hymnody, and now he's just spitting it back out. Because, as we said, the way one believes is the way one prays or the way one worships. And so it's, it's going full circle here. Which is just, again, a, a wonderful um, warning for all Lutherans to use only theologically solid Lutheran hymnody and liturgy. And I would suggest that the hymn in which I'm referring to, I mean, it was written as a reaction towards 
what you've been talking about with a sacramental understanding of the Bible and a sacramental theology because it's saying nothing but the blood of Jesus as if that's somehow or another ethereal or just takes place, what, noetically? That's an interesting problem that they have, isn't it? How does this get applied? Now, he, he's already said that they've received the Holy Spirit. Probably, how? I mean, through the proclamation of the word of the apostles, apparently. That must be it, right? But then there's been an admission already, and Luther struggled with this with the darn enthusiasts who wanted to claim that they received the Holy Spirit apart from the word, and yet proclaim the word. Why proclaim the word if the Holy Spirit's available apart from that word? They recognize, in other words, in their own actions that God uses means to apply the blood of Christ to people. We're not suggesting that this Andrew Farley doesn't know his Bible, but if he would just look at the passages that deal with it specifically and not wear these tainted glasses here, he would hear that this blood is applied. What what does the scripture say? By the, the washing of regeneration, you know, which is poured out on you generously. I mean, what, what is he talking about? He's talking about baptism. Why, why, why is it so hard to believe that God does wonderful things via physical instruments? It goes back to his prayer, his opening prayer. He starts with the Lord up in heaven. Uh, there's this great gulf that can't be abridged except for through spirit. So again, you you were right onto it. I think that this noetic kind of ethereal thing. Uh, and so Christianity becomes reduced to this intellectual ascent or, or something of that nature. Oh, well, it's good. Your emotions have got to be tied to that somehow. Somehow or other. So, you, so, so it's your emotions. It's your, it's your intellectual ascent. It's all very intangible. But if you do not begin looking for God in the bosom of his mother of the Blessed Virgin, you will, you'll miss him. You will entirely miss God. And that right there is such a scary thought, to think that one could live their entire life in this intellectual, emotional ascent, so to speak, this, this ladder climbing to heaven, you know, that you can't even, <laughs> you can't even put your hands on the ladder. You don't even know where the ladder is, but you're, you're making this upward movement, you know, with your arms and your feet. You're going nowhere, but boy, you think you are, and you spend your whole life doing it. And Christianity is a protest against precisely such a religion. The incarnation narrative features huge in Matthew and Luke. I mean, they, they devote full three chapters to the develop to uh, two chapters at any rate to the fact that God becomes flesh and the climax of the prologue of the gospel according to St. John the word became flesh and dwelt among us and and we have seen his glory when in the flesh glories of the only begotten of, of the father full of grace and truth and then he goes on verse 18 no one has ever seen God before the monogenes theos the the only begotten God who was in the bosom of the Father, this one has made him known. How? In the flesh. The elevators go in the wrong way. Gerhard Ferdy talks like this. Uh, these people are trying to go up the down elevator. God's elevator goes down. His gifts come down. And all of this kind of religion tries to ascend to highest heaven to peep into the hidden things of God. 
Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. And people quote this verse, and they say, See, you got to be born of water, go get in the baptismal, jump in the swimming pool. you got to be born of water and the Spirit in order to see the kingdom of God. And they're assuming... They're assuming that Jesus is talking about water baptism. Wouldn't you make that assumption, Pastor Bross? I would, but my assumption would be predicated upon the other scriptures. So Titus chapter 3, where the Holy Spirit is poured out upon us generously through the washing of regeneration. So you don't think that when Jesus says this to Nicodemus that he's got something else in mind? No. You think then that word and water and spirit are all somehow or another connected together to give you the gifts that Peter says in Acts chapter 2, which is the gift of the Holy Spirit and the forgiveness of your sins. That's, that's what you're saying that's Jesus what, is saying to Nicodemus. That's exactly what I think he's saying. And Farley is saying that you're assuming that. That I'm importing it into the text. I've actually never rested my case uh, for baptism on John chapter 3. There are much more straightforward passages, but when you take those straightforward passages all together and see the richness of the language and then hear it reflected in John chapter 3, it becomes very clear that John chapter 3 is part of that concatenation. So are you using a hermeneutical technique called Clearer passages govern unclear passages? That would be the, the rule of hermeneutics that I'm appealing to. So you spoke about importing things into the text. Just take a listen to what Farley imports. I can't wait. Friend, this is a case of when we are putting on those baptism glasses, our own preconceived idea... We're going to take our pet theology and put it on as a lens and then look at John chapter 3 and impose water baptism on this when it is not in the text, it is not there, and that is not God's intention. So just before, he dissed Romans 6 that talks about baptism but does not mention H2O and discounts it as having to do with baptism. Now we turn to John chapter 3 where H2O is mentioned, water, and he disses it because it doesn't mention the word baptism. What does he need? <laughs> well, you know, he's setting us all straight. Goodness. But actually what he's going to do is he's going to jumble everything up again. So what's he talking about? Well, it's as easy as this. It's as easy as looking at the next sentence. I mean, if you look at the next sentence, Jesus explains himself, that which is born of what? The flesh, meaning mom. That which is born of mom is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. So Jesus is saying the same thing twice. He is saying you've got to be born of water, which, by the way, is the same thing as born of mom. Anybody uh, understand that? I mean, uh, the child is in a sack of water for about nine months, right? Born of water, born of mom. And then later on, eight years, 10 years, 12 years, they hear the gospel, they believe, they receive, and they are born of the Spirit. So Jesus is making it simple. You can have a natural birth, but you're going to need a spiritual birth. 
It's one thing to exist on this planet. It's another thing to be placed in Christ. And so this dashes against the rocks. It does away with this idea of, are you saved? Well, yeah, I grew up in church. Are you saved? Well, yeah, I mean, my parents are Christian. Christian family. I grew up in a Christian family. See, it's not your natural birth that saves. It is a spiritual birth. And if you don't know what I'm talking about yet, I'm saying that it is not about your heritage or your lineage or your family upbringing or where you were born or how good you were as a kid or the fact that you were never brought into the principal's office and that you've lived a clean life, never smoking and not drinking or maybe not too much and then not hanging out with people that do. And man, I've lived a good life. And so many people think that in their natural birth, They can clean up the natural and be presented to God. And what Jesus is saying is you got to be born naturally, and then there must be a spiritual birth born of the Spirit. You see what I mean? He just, you know, in in the attempt to straighten us all out, the church for 2,000 years, the bulk of which that have actually believed that baptism does something, he comes along and it's like he just... I don't know, man. Just either starts cutting it or gets it all up in a knot or gives it to the cat to play with. (laughs) This is a mess. It is an absolute exegetical mess. Now, he raised a problem that I don't know that he is aware that he raised. He has said that the proper exegesis is to say that if you're born of the flesh, that doesn't do any good for you. You got to be born of the spirit. And so you get born of the flesh when you're zero days old. And you, you need to, you know, at age 8 or 10, when you hear the gospel, then you give your life to the Lord Jesus, and then you're born of the Spirit. Ah, we've got a huge problem here. If being born of the flesh is not enough to be saved, what happens to all these hundreds of thousands of people who die between age 0 and age 8 or 10 or whenever they give their life to the Lord Jesus Christ? That's a huge problem that he can't reckon with. Number two. We've talked about this before, Pastor Kearns. We say that the water is broken. Greek language does not refer to the amniotic fluid as water. It does not. So what Jesus is talking about in the first verse that he cited, unless a person is born of water and the Spirit, he will not see the kingdom of God. Uh, That water there is not referring to the natural birth. Really, that's a hendiades, um, and John uses hendiadeses all the time, or it, sometimes they're called hendiaduoin. Um, it's where you take two terms that, that, that could be put like watery spirit or spirit and water or, or, or water and spirit, whatever. Um, it's and like salt separate, and pepper. Salt and pepper, yeah. You, Peanut uh, butter and jelly. Correct. Those two go they, together. They all go together. They all go together. And so this is the... Thank the, you. The technique that John is employing. Correct. Because they do go together. They, They're not separate things. Exactly. And we see that, and you pointed this out before, uh, Titus chapter 3, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, right? You've got pouring, pouring. What do you pour? You pour water you in pour. a church service over a non-baptized, penitent believer. Correct. That's what distributes the gifts. But he would say, oh, there's no water in that passage. Baptism's not in that passage. The Bible is sopping wet. <laughs> yes. I mean, if you really push on the pages on the on the cover, right? You put, you squeeze it together. It's like I mean, a sponge. It's it's going to seep out. 
And the fascinating thing is, we're not making this up. It was just like in the, the last podcast where I played some other guys talking about the same thing. When you follow the theme of water through the Bible, you see that it starts in the Garden of Eden with these four rivers. And I'll be doggone, you get to the book of Revelation that's written in code that nobody really even understands, unless you know all of the Old Testament. Even if you know all of the Old Testament, you're still left scratching your head in places. But I'll be doggone, what's there in that new heaven and new earth? The river. The river. That water goes all the way through, and it's like a central theme throughout the entire Scripture. It's central in the Garden of Eden. It's central in the new heavens and the new earth. And to think that we just discount it now in the meantime blows me away. And to think that Jesus would go to Nicodemus and say that in order to see the kingdom of God or to be in the kingdom of God or however he words it, you've got to be born naturally. That is so stupid. <laughs> Actually, that might be the whole best argument I've heard. <laughs> it, it really is you, very stupid. In my opinion, he takes something so clear. Now, granted, there was a time when I didn't see it too, okay? So I'm really not trying to knock the guy. But he's taken something very clear. Maybe not, as you pointed out earlier, it becomes even clearer when we compare Scripture with Scripture. But he takes something clear, and he turns it into 56 plus green equals milk. <laughs> right. <laughs> Which is utter nonsense. Yes. Yeah. Now, for everybody in here who has received Christ... Man, there is some awesome news. You're born of the Spirit. That is a pretty cool phrase. I've got my, my mom's nose and my dad's jaw, uh, and I look a lot like both of them. I'm born of them. I was born of Farley, naturally. Well, what you find out in being born of the Spirit is you've got the Spirit's heart. You've got Daddy's heart. Uh, you've got Daddy's nature. You look like Daddy on the inside. Abba, Father. We got too many Christians saying, my heart is hard. No, your heart is not hard. You've got daddy's heart. My heart uh, is distant from God. No, you, you've got daddy's heart. You're raised and seated right next to him. Well, you know, there's many rooms in my heart and God's like a janitor cleaning them all up. We talked about that recently. You've heard that analogy. Jesus is a janitor. Jesus the janitor. And he's mopping up my heart. And he's going from room to room. And some of us have him stuck in the utility closet. Right? <laughs> so if you just let him out, then he could clean up your heart. Look, I understand we've got mindsets and attitudes that are getting cleaned up. The renewing of the mind. But Jesus is not a janitor. He's a heart surgeon. He took out your heart of stone. Gave you a new heart. Whoa, 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 muchacho. That reference there, if I'm not mistaken, there's something to do with clean water. Let me check it out here. This is uh, Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 25 and 26. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit, spirit, I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. So that first verse that you read there, clearly, again, it's a watery verse. 
And there is what? The forgiveness of sins attached to this. I will cleanse you of all of your iniquities. And then as you pointed out, there is this spirit. The the spirit is operative, given. This is a prophecy that Ezekiel is making about exactly what Jesus says to Nicodemus, exactly what Jesus says in Matthew 28, and exactly what Paul says. I mean, but boy, we just kind of throw these things around and just take the water element completely out of it, don't we? That was very convenient to start at verse 26 on his part. You don't need to be saying your heart is hard. You might have a hardened attitude, but not a hardened heart. And so we are born of the Spirit. We've got Daddy's heart. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you, Peter says. Not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You know what he just did? He just put the brakes on for anybody who thinks it's about water. Hey, hey, baptism saves, okay? There's a baptism that saves. There is an immersion that saves, uh, but, 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 but it's not, okay? It's not water baptism. It's not the washing of your body in a swimming pool. It's not the washing away of your sins with H2O. It's not the removal of some sort of spiritual or physical dirt from your body. You gotta get put where? Put in the resurrection of Jesus. Do you know that that's what's happened to you? That you were put in the resurrection of Jesus? That Easter is a bigger deal than Christmas? That it's great that Jesus showed up on this planet for us, but 33 years later He died and rose from the dead, and you are a child of the resurrection. He raised you up in Him It's baptism into the resurrection of Jesus that saves us. It's really hard to parse this out, isn't it? Because there's truth here, but yet there's error, which makes it all error. Right. What's the truth part? We have been baptized into the resurrection. That's true. That's true. We've also been baptized into the death. Right. And and he's not focusing on that, which, which I find puzzling to say the least where does he get that we've been baptized into the resurrection of christ romans 6 but he's already denied that that has anything to do with water baptism right and saint peter you know that passage this is first peter chapter 3 21 baptism which corresponds to this and that's the the, uh the flood now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body but as an appeal to god for a good conscience through the resurrection of jesus christ now, what Paul is saying there... Can I just interrupt? I'm sorry. Yes. Wouldn't you say that a good conscience is a result of your sins being forgiven? Precisely. That's exactly it. So what he's, for, what he's failing to see, he's failing to connect this with uh, Acts chapter 2, verse 38. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's a, this, what, what Peter is saying is, look, folks, you got baptized with water. But just so you're not misunderstanding what happened there, it's not like you were taking a shower and getting to smell nice for the day. This was actually the application of the forgiveness of sins in Christ to you through your water baptism. And now you have a clean conscience. And now that conscience doesn't have to be burdened by the fact of, are my sins forgiven? Did this truly happen? 
did I receive the gift of the Holy Spirit? You don't have to worry about that. You, you go down into the water, as this guy said, and you come up and you don't have any feeling about it. You don't have an emotion about it. Did I really receive it? Did the water get poured on your head? <laughs> right. That's that, and that is exactly the point of baptism. Exactly the point of the of the sacramental means of grace. It's it's also the point of the proclamation of the word. God uses them in, to apply this to us. Sometimes, well, I don't know. I mean, I don't want to go down. I don't want to theorize about why God chose to do it that way. But in any case, when you hear from your father confessor. I forgive you all your sins in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. You darn well know that it applies to you. And you can't unsay those words. You can't unpour the water that was poured on your head in baptism as a child. And you can't regurgitate the body and blood of Christ that you've received in the sacrament of the altar. Those are fixed facts that say that God is earnest about forgiving your sins. That is where your comfort lies, not in some noetic assent to a proposition about what happened to Jesus uh, in A.D. 33. Yeah, I love that. I mean, every father confessor I've ever had, he places his hands on my head, right? I mean, he's not talking about anybody else. And a couple of them have actually taken their stole and wrapped it around me you know, when they forgive me all of my sins, I know clearly who Who, he's talking to. Who they're talking to. It's just me. And I walk out of there with a clear conscience. Right. And see, when he was talking about that, you know, you don't have a hard heart and all this kind of stuff. You got your daddy's heart or whatever he was saying. You know, there really was. There's. It's like a complete denial of the fact of saint and sinner, isn't there? There is. And this is the Oseandrian error. Uh, what is the thing that justifies? Is it Christ in me that is my justification? Or is it Christ outside of me applying the forgiveness of sins to me? The answer is it's Christ outside of me, not Christ in me. Christ in me is there. There's no question. Christ in me is a little good works factory. But my justification before God, my standing before God, is not based upon the production of my good works factory. It's based upon the objective proclamation that my sins are forgiven. Now, maybe I'm wrong here, but as you say what you say, and I think back to what he has said, it's almost like he's, he's still using the water bottle analogy. <laughs> the water's in the bottle, and the water is God. God, and you've got Daddy's heart. I think you're exactly right. I, I, as I was talking about that, <laughs> that was becoming very clear to me. So that metaphor is permeating his, his thinking. Or do you not know? Paul says this in Romans chapter 6. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death. Therefore, we've been buried with him through baptism into death so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Now, what is this saying? Let's answer before he does. What, what is this saying, Pastor Bruss? <laughs> Uh, what Paul is saying is what he means according to the natural meaning of the words. He's saying that those, all of us who have been had water poured over our heads in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, according to Christ's own command, 
have been so joined with Christ that we have been buried with him, our sins kept and laid six feet under and raised with him to a new life, a life that lives before God in righteousness and purity forever. Which is exactly what Ezekiel prophesied would happen. Exactly. Yes, this is the new heart, the new heart that doesn't cower before God, but has faithful confidence in his promises. Including the forgiveness of sins, the gift of the Holy Spirit, all via the means of the word attached to water. Correct. Why Why is this so complicated for him? This is not a newbie. This is a guy who knows his Bible, yet he cannot see this. I don't know. I, I, it's hard for me to speculate. Uh, probably part of it is, you know, his baptism at age 15 where nothing happened, according to him. Uh, so he's clearly been raised in this morass. But the other, the other part of it is that there's, uh, isn't there a, um, isn't part of the appeal of non-denominationalism, the breaking down of what they would refer to as rigid denominational lines. And baptism is one of those questions that is almost definitional for denominations. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. And I would just add just one little step more. And I guess we would say it's a form of piety. I mean, you become more spiritual by throwing these things off, right? You you can't get any more spiritual than these clowns. That's what the suggestion is, or that's that's what they're uh, projecting. And anybody who holds on to their baptism, anybody who takes the very body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, anybody who goes to a father confessor because you're going to some man to tell him your sins and have your sins forgiven, I go straight to Jesus. Correct. So, so the interesting thing is it's spiritual because it is not physical. Right. And this is the problem. This is why we started with Jesus up in heaven, where we have to ascend to him in the, in the opening prayer. And this just rifles and ripples through the entire theology, denying ultimately, I would contend, that this is a new form of docetism, where God the Son only appeared to take on human flesh, but didn't really take on human flesh. I've perhaps mentioned this on, on this podcast before, but I, uh, when I lived in the South uh, in Tennessee, I used to have a Christology test for people, you know, these Christians who would come up to me. And my question was, did Jesus ever poop in his pants? They're horrified by something like They're that. They're totally horrified by it. A Lutheran says, yes, and thank God he did. Because then God became flesh, whereas your average spiritualistic, enthusiastic, non-denominational, quasi-Baptist kind of person thinks that you have just committed the, the greatest blasphemy. Which, if I'm not mistaken, I mean, this is why Jews have a hard time believing in Jesus as the Messiah. It, it's below the dignity of the one true God to be enfleshed. Right. And to go through all of the things that we in the flesh go through and deal with. Right. So along with the docetism, isn't this somewhat Gnostic? That this guy here at Church Without Religion has got, man, he's got the secret knowledge. He does. And, and the secret knowledge is this ability to twist an entirely different meaning out of the plain words of Scripture. In a series called Twisted Scripture. 
Right. It, it is very Gnostic, I would say. You got done made purple, and I know that's not grammatical. <laughs> you got done made purple. He put you in Christ, and you participated in a death, burial, and resurrection in Christ. Now, we have talked about this so much in this church, but it bears repeating pretty often that we are immersed in Jesus. Jesus is crucified. We're crucified in Him. Jesus is buried. We're buried in Him. Jesus is raised. We're raised in Him. Jesus is seated in heavenly places, and we are seated in Him. This in-Him relationship is emphasized six times more often than Jesus being in us. I got Jesus in my heart. Jesus lives in me. Man, that is a solid message worth talking about. But do you know that six times more often the Bible says you're in Jesus? So, you know what? It's great that the water is in the bottle. But six times more often it says the bottle is in the water. And that means you're safe and secure, enveloped, placed into, immersed, folded into. You are raised up and seated in Christ, in God, hidden with Christ in God, Paul says. I love that. Hidden with Christ in God. Nobody can get to you. The evil one cannot touch you. Okay, this is what I was talking about earlier, about it's difficult here uh, to parse out the, uh, the bad from the good. He's right, but I think we're listening to him with Lutheran ears, i.e. biblical ears, he is saying all of this happens from this noetic apart from baptism. Right. So everything that he said since we last paused yeah. has been spot on. Right. The problem is he doesn't attribute it to baptism with water, which is the only baptism that the New Testament knows. Right. Yeah, It's too bad. I mean, it's really too bad because here he's showing himself to be a good theologian. The problem is he's leaving his people in, the, in this very, un, he's saying you're safe, but it's this very unsafe place because there is no objective thing that they can point to where God himself took the initiative, reached into their life, applied water to their heads and said, you are mine. Yeah, it's like talking to a Mormon. You know, the Mormons over the years, they've changed their verbiage, but the definitions have not changed. And so when you say, as a baptized believer in Christ Jesus, you say, yeah, I believe in God the Father. Well, their God the Father ain't your God the Father. No, sir. Right? Their God the Father used to be a human being who did exactly what the Book of Mormon told them to do, uh, was elevated to, to deity, and now lives on a planet near the star Kolob with his celestial wives where he's populating the planet. And sending his son to ours. Yeah, yeah. Sending everybody, actually. Everybody starts there. Oh, I did. Okay. I, yeah. I just don't know. I don't know. That's why they call him Heavenly Father. You came from him. I see. And, okay. he, and that celestial baby moved from point A to point B, point B being your mama's womb. My point is Elohim, that's a different Heavenly Father altogether. Right. Well, that's what this guy's doing. Right. So the verbiage is there. But the definition is not. He's talking about the dry baptism. All of these gifts, which they are gifts, and they are given to you, 
they have been applied via the means of a dry baptism. According to him. Yes. But God applies them actually through the water baptism. Right. Through the only baptism that the scriptures know. Right. And so we see this is the reason that we can say no to sin. It's not, uh, I can say no to sin once I've had 17 quiet times. It's not that I can say no to sin once I've been to church enough. It's not that I can say no to sin once I muster up the strength somehow. It's not that I can say no to sin once I arrive at maturity, whenever that might be. I get to say I'm dead to that thought and alive to my God because he carried me through a heart surgery. I died with Jesus and woke up a brand new person. And that thought used to be for me when I was a plain old cloth. That used to be for me. But I'm telling you, I got done made purple. And that thought ain't purple. Amen? What? That went off the rails big time, and and you know let's just let's just say that he uh, into his grand finale he tried to uh, weave too many themes of the sermon, but uh, whoa the wheels came off. So you couldn't give him an amen at the end of that? No, I I didn't understand what he was saying. This is an interesting technique. You confuse everybody, but you say amen at the end of the confusion, and everybody says amen. As if they understood it. Right. They're on the in-group now. And there's a purple new heart, surgery, raised from the dead, blah, blah, blah. Bottled water sealed up. Right. I don't know what the hell he was talking about, but I'm just going to say amen. 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 I did not recognize him, but he who sent me, this is John the Baptist, he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, he upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in what? In the Holy Spirit. Friends, this is what it's about. This is the way to salvation. We get put in the Holy Spirit. Water is a fantastic image of that, but the one who came Jesus Christ is the one who puts us in the Spirit. I'm not sure what he's trying to get out of this, but John's baptism was a a baptism of repentance only. It was not a gospel baptism. That's point number one. So the baptism that Christ brings, uh, the baptism that he actually talks to Nicodemus, so now he's he's actually referring to John chapter 1 here. Uh, The baptism that Jesus talks to Nicodemus about is still a baptism. Let's not forget that. It's not a figurative or symbolic. Baptism is not figurative or symbolic for what's happening. It's actually a baptism. But the baptism that Jesus gives in the forgiveness of sins in his blood is a baptism that carries with it the Holy Spirit who works faith in the heart in the thing that's delivered in the baptism. Now, we can see this was a problem, actually, in the early church. You, you go to Acts chapter 19, and Paul, I, I believe it's 19, Paul walks into the, uh, to Ephesus, and Apollos has been teaching these guys there. And they know some of this stuff, but they don't know all of it. And he says, have you been baptized? And, and they say, well, we've, all we've received is the baptism of John. So they had received a baptism of repentance, And so St. Paul baptizes them with a baptism of 
Jesus for the forgiveness of all of their sins. Paul baptized them? He does, actually. That's interesting. Paul baptized them. I thought he was only supposed to preach. <laughs> he, uh, he failed to uh, open up his uh, secret mission slip on that day. But he, so he baptizes these guys, and um, they receive the gift of the Spirit. That's what it says. And the reason that they receive the gift of the Spirit is because the Spirit is promised through the baptism. And John actually talks about it in John chapter 1. There is one body, as we conclude today. There is one Spirit, just as also you were called into one hope of your calling. Look at this, how unifying this is. This is about baptism and unity. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. How beautiful Ephesians 4 is. We may not think of baptism as unity, but there is a spiritual baptism that has unified us. How frustrating is that? So frustrating that I, I, I almost wanted to jump out of my seat. He has created two baptisms in the sermon. I hope everybody has heard that. There's the spiritual baptism, which happens, as you have said, noetically. And then there's this water baptism, which is really, we've characterized it or caricaturized it by saying, this is the time when I say I'm on team Jesus. But that's exactly what it is. It's nothing more than that. So he's got two baptisms. And, and now the apostle has referred to only one baptism, He's going to reduce that to the spiritual one, not the water one, because the spiritual and the water one can't be one and the same, according to him. And he has just absolutely destroyed the entire teaching of the New Testament on baptism. Right. And this is where I say it's at times it's difficult to discern the two, but clear here. Baptism, water baptism, is unifying. He's right there. I like that. I mean, it is a unifying thing. This is actually who the church is for, who the church is made up of. It is the baptized. Right. Right. But then to turn around and say that, oh, this is a spiritual baptism, who is twisting the scriptures? I mean, seriously, it's really that simple. Who is the one who has twisted all of the scriptures that he has laid out for us? He, He is. He, he clearly has made a, just a huge mess out of them. And so if, as we go back to the very beginning of how this began, he's got 42 things. Man, if he screws this one up so badly, what in the world? I'm not saying that everything else he says is going to be wrong, but if you start from this point and you are off so far... I don't know if I can trust him to interpret any scriptures. I couldn't. You know, fortunately, we looked up, looked this up. There are four Missouri Synod churches in Lubbock, Texas, where a uh, church without religion is. And we sure hope that if anybody uh, has the temptation to go to church without religion uh, and check this out or is looking for a church in Lubbock, Texas, that they'll look for one of those uh, Missouri Synod churches. Go to lcms.org, go to Locator, type in Lubbock, Texas, uh, and search for one of those four churches. Well, let's let him finish this mess out. There are people today teaching a false doctrine, and they are teaching that there is a message for the Jews and then a, a different message for the Gentiles. That the new covenant is just for the 
Jews and then the Gentiles have some other message. So we should be, well, we should be Paul only people. We should only study Paul, only listen to Paul because Paul wrote the Gentiles. Everybody else wrote the Jews. And so we've got two gospels or two messages that are running on different paths. I don't really know where he's going with this, but I have no idea what he's talking about. No, he's, he's right in calling it a heresy if, yeah. if this is in fact true. I, I don't know who is espousing this at all. Well, let's see. Let's see what he does with it. Now, what does this verse say? One hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God. For who? For all. All who is over all and through all and in all for everybody. Put another way, 1 Corinthians 12. Though there are many, though there are many, they are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit... We were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether Jews or Gentiles, whether slaves or free, we were all made to drink of one spirit. So he puts the Jewish person in Christ, and he puts the Gentile person in Christ, and we're all made one through spiritual baptism into Jesus. There it is again. You know, I mean, I was totally with him. I'm like, yes, you are right. You are right. Until he delivered that one last little phrase there at the end. You're all made into one via this spiritual baptism. It's very sad. There are not two gospels. There are not two messages. There is one unifying message. And I'm sorry to interrupt him here. And there's one baptism. Right. One baptism. He's the one who's been saying there's two baptisms. Correct. That we get to celebrate. Being in Jesus is what it's about for everybody. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Your gender doesn't give you your value. Your lineage on this planet, your heritage, your upbringing, your family name doesn't bring you your value. Your value comes from being clothed in Christ. And I know what people think. The first minute we think of being clothed in Christ, we think it's a great cover-up. That God is doing a fantastic cover-up of who we are. We need to emphasize and repeat again and again. You got born of the Spirit, so there's no cover-up. And then you got clothed with Jesus Christ. You were placed, baptized into His death, into His burial, into His resurrection, born of Him, righteous at the core, and then you got clothed with Christ. It is no cover-up. He sees you as you, and He is pleased with who you are. So today we've seen so much. I mean, we've seen the lie that you must be baptized in water to be saved. And this idea is rampant. Number one, it's not a lie. Number two, it's not an idea. It's a biblical truth. And number three, I'm kind of glad it's rampant because you know what? It's true. Thank God that it is. I'm just looking at this guy's bio, Pastor Kearns, on on his website, andrewfarley.org. 
And this guy has uh, some serious chops. Uh, he's a professor of linguistics. He's taught at University of Notre Dame and uh, Texas Tech University. Uh, it doesn't say anything about an MDiv, so I, I don't know that he's got any formal seminary training at all. But his linguistics background certainly isn't helping him here at all. I'm just super disappointed. I'm really, really disappointed at, yeah. the, at the twisting yeah. that has gone on in, in what we've just listened to. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, we expect this from the yahoos who go to, uh, you know, like Liberty University and get some sort of youth ministry degree. We expect this type of uh, twisting from them. But it boggles my mind how somebody of his caliber could be so deceptive. Yes, and and probably even self-deceptive, unintentionally self-deceptive. Okay, fair enough, but that takes me back to the sermon you preached that we actually played here on the podcast last time. You said in that sermon, they're liars. That's right. He, he, he is a liar. And his, Whether or not he's self-deceptive or not, correct. he is a liar. Correct. And and I'm not I'm not one to like throw that around at, at somebody except for myself. He he has put the lie to God's word, without without a doubt, without a doubt. And this this is not quibbling over a fine point of doctrine. I, no. I think what we've uh, I think and I hope that people have heard the gulf, the huge difference between what the scriptures teach about the God who descends to us, and here in our world brings to us the goods that he won on his holy cross through baptism, through the sacrament of the altar, and through his word. That's that's one, that's the biblical God. And this other God that has been erected here, with whom we have only a kind of, I mean, it's, it's almost like Kantian, you know, it, like post-Emmanuel Kant kind of stuff, a purely intellectual noetic relationship that robs the baby in Mary's arms of the divinity, that robs the sacrament of the altar of the body and blood of Christ, and therefore also Christ's divinity, that robs the sacrament of, the, uh, of baptism, of the divine power that Christ himself put into it. He who believes and is baptized shall be saved, shall be saved. You can't save yourself. Baptism does. The gulf of difference here. We're talking two really different religions that go under the name and banner of Christianity. Find a Wisconsin Synod Church, a Missouri Synod Church, an Evangelical Lutheran Synod Church, ELS.org. That's not... That's not ELCA. That's ELS, Evangelical Lutheran Synod. They are all over the country and hear from those pulpits God's word taught in its truth and purity because God would have nothing else for you. You can find it just a few miles from here. You can find it all over this nation and beyond. People want to look at something tangible and physical and measurable just like 2,000 years ago with the Judaizers and circumcision. He is exactly right. People do want to look for something tangible, something physical, something they, they can point to, instead of this ethereal looking for God up in the heavenly realms. That's true, and the only reason that Christians want to look for something tangible and physical is because God himself instituted that stuff. So it's not as if, I mean, what, what he's doing here is he's taking, he's got the directionality wrong. 
um, he, he is imputing to those of us who hold to this tangible sacramental theology, he's imputing to us that we have made up the sacramental theology to meet our need to have something tangible. Now, you know me as, as, as well as anybody else, and you know that I, that I live my life in my head, right? If there's anybody who wants to just have a, a noetic relationship with God, it would be me. You'd be the poster boy. But the scriptures don't give me a God like that. They give me a God who is enfleshed. They give me a God who saves me through water. They give me a God who gives me his body and blood through bread and wine for the forgiveness of my sins. They give me a God who sends me a pastor named Pastor Kearns, who with his own two lips speaks over me the forgiveness of all of my sins. I have not made this up. This is in the scriptures. Well, more than that, we see it over and over again in the scriptures. Where did Adam and Eve go to meet with God? At the tree. They went to the tree. There he was. Where did the ancient Israelites go to meet with God? At the temple. And before and the mercy, that, at the tabernacle, and the right? mercy seat, right? This is where God said, this and, is where you can find me. And guess what? There was blood there. There was smoke rising from the sacrifice. They, they, they could see it. They could smell it. But in seeing it and smelling it and believing it, they knew they had it. They had the gifts. They couldn't deny God's grace and mercy toward them when they saw those things because he had connected his word and promise to those things. But Farley McFarley here, he is talking about this, like God's totally changed the... He, even though he says, you know, I change not, boy, he's changed, hasn't he? It's a new way to approach me. Right. From the, new te- from the Old Testament, you're saying. Yeah, it, it, it's, it's almost as if the Jesus of the New Testament is like this enlightenment wet dream, right? Um, the God of the Old Testament is really messy. And, you know, today in the Enlightenment, everything's orderly and we have the divine clockmaker and all this sort of stuff. Very clean. Very clean. You know, I keep wanting to get to the end of the sermon, but yet he, he throws in this, this trash like this. It just drives me crazy. Right, folks. We've been trying to get to the end of the sermon for you for a long time, <laughs> but it's just one thing after another. But today we've changed that into baptism, adding to the work of Jesus, saying this is what saves, and ultimately spitting at the foot of the cross, spitting at that tomb and saying that is not enough. It's Jesus plus. He did it again. That was uncorked, totally uncorked. The same Jesus who died on the cross after his resurrection said to his disciples, Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations by baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them all things whatsoever I have commanded you. So we're the ones spitting on Jesus, on the cross, whatever else he said we're spitting on. We're the ones doing this. This is, this is crazy talk. It, it is crazy talk. He's the one who spit on every text he's touched, but he started this way because he's held this belief since he was 15 right if not before well this morning we have seen that it is Jesus plus nothing no additives nothing to muck it up you are not baptized into water to be saved 
The truth is, baptism into Christ himself saves us. Let's pray together. Man, normally I would not let him pray for us uh, because he I don't know what God he's praying to. But seeing how we learn so much from the introductory prayer, let's let him pray. I think we ought to. Father, we thank you for this simple truth. It may be something we don't even wrestle with, but we wrestle with, are we clean? And we need to know we're in. We wrestle with, are we okay with you? Are you mad at us? And we need to know we're in. We wrestle with, if we're distant and dirty, but we need to know we're in. Again and again, we ask you, are we okay? Is there something wrong with us? Did we flub it up? Did we mess it up? Are we still safe? Are we still secure? Are we okay with you? Father, we thank you for the simple, straightforward message from your word that this is it. You're in. You're in me. You're enveloped. You're safe. You're secure. It's solid. It's unbreakable. It's unshakable. I and you and you and me. Father, we thank you for that. We believe that. We celebrate that. We are grateful for the heart surgery, the DNA swap, the fusion of you with us so that we can be one with Jesus Christ. In His name we pray. Amen. Uh, no, not, not amen. Uh, again, it sounds good, but after listening to his sermon, you can tell that he believes that all of this comes about through that dry baptism. The dry baptism, which is actually a decision. So let's talk about where Jesus plus is. Jesus plus is actually on on his side of the, the equation, because what Jesus requires of you is your mental, emotional, spiritual, whatever, assent to the proclamation of his, of his gospel, and you are dead in trespasses and sins. And, and you know, you're Wait, trying— dead dead people can't decide? No, they can't. And let's talk about this, the simple truth. Aren't I mean, you taking that a little too literally? literally no. <laughs> No, no. Is, is this what God's... Well, I'm sure that he thinks it's too literal. You're figuratively dead in trespasses. Oh, and okay, yeah. okay. <laughs> Makes me feel better. But if, if we have seen anything, have we not seen that instead of his version of baptism being the simple truth, it's actually a convoluted lie that denies the very words of God in the scriptures, that pits various words of God against each other and uses them to swallow one another up and to deny what God himself has promised to do through the the gift of the sacrament of holy baptism. This is the tragedy of, of this whole thing. Yeah, and I think what we've got is we don't have twisted scripture. We've got a twisted preacher. Pastor Kearns, I'm going to ask you the same question that you asked me a week or two ago. Are we seeing paws or hooves here? Oh, man. There's not even a sheep's clothing. This is full boar wolf. I mean, with the tongue hanging out, the saliva dripping off of it, the, the heavy panting, the, you know, the prowling around, the head down, this wolf is ready to bite. And the reason is because he's, as much as he's asserting that he's giving us Jesus, he's actually t taking Jesus away. Um, um, Jesus promises that he comes to us through his word and sacrament. 
and he's it's like if you will you're on one side of the Grand Canyon and Jesus is on the other side of the Grand Canyon and what Jesus does with his word and sacrament is he builds a bridge from his side to your side your side you're dead and you're dead already you couldn't build the bridge it's an impossible task and and you have to amplify this you know gajillions infinite times uh, because of the the separation of whatever sin and death and all this sort of stuff but why uh, to interrupt you real quick why is it easier for us to imagine jesus building the bridge and coming across this way and where he actually comes from from heaven to earth that like that weirds us out can't do that don't want that yeah but this is what this is what it is and he's basically taken a stick of dynamite to the bridge that jesus has built leaving us to sort of wave at Jesus in the distance and not have the assurance of salvation that Jesus wants to give us. Well, I've got bad news for you, Pastor Bruss. As if you haven't already had enough bad news the last however long we've been doing this, he's got 40, what, 42, 41 more sermons to give on twisted scripture. So unfortunately, we might be checking in with Farley McFarley here again. I actually kind of look forward to it because he does make arguments. They're really bad arguments, but he does make arguments. There's something to sink our teeth into here and and to respond to. And what he does probably um, is expose the underlying thinking, if to, to the extent that it's there, of the other preachers who are just saying whatever they're saying without making an argument for it. Well, I'm glad you enjoy it as much as you do. And I hope you, the listener, have enjoyed listening to another edition of the Pluck Chicken Podcast. You'll hear from us next time. You've been listening to the Plucked Chicken Podcast with your hosts, Pastors John Bruss and Devin Kern. To discover more, go to thepluckedchicken.com or stjohnlcmstopeka.org.